We live in an unsettled world. I don't have to tell us that. We see it on the news, it seems like, every day. It was January 7th of this year, there was a shooting in Paris at a movie, at a magazine publishing house, for the magazine Charlie Hebdo. Twelve people were killed, eleven were wounded. All because they dared to publish some cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad. It was just a few weeks ago, on November 13th, that once again we were, and there were some in between here in Paris, if you will, and in Europe, terrorist attacks. But it was in Paris at the theater in a soccer game on November the 13th when seven perpetrators of terrorism killed 130 people, one U.S. citizen, 368, were wounded. Some 80 to 90 were critically wounded. And then it was just at 11 a.m. on December 2nd, just a few days ago, 300 miles approximately from where we are right now, that again, Muslim terrorists took the lives of 14 people, wounding 21. The youngest of those killed was 26. The oldest was age 60. They were husbands. They were wives. They were fathers. They were mothers. They were children of someone. They left behind wives and husbands and children. Their families have been devastated and will now seek to find a new sense of normal. And that should bother us as to what happened. And it does. It makes us fearful of where we live. I mean, that was three hours away. It wasn't some six or seven thousand miles away in Paris, France. Or it wasn't 14,000 miles away in the middle of Iraq or Afghanistan. It was almost in our backyard. So it tells us it can happen anywhere. And then... In the midst of all of those tragedies, people today will, as commonly will do so in social media, leaders, political leaders, and just ordinary people will make posts on Facebook and Twitter expressing their concern, their sense of loss and grief and mourning, expressing their prayers for those who have fallen. And I think I left it over in my... On, my, on the pew, I had a copy of the headline that came out in the New York Daily News the next day, December 13th. Bold headline, God isn't fixing this. Then it would have Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, Lindsey Graham, Paul Ryan, Republican leaders who expressed their condolences, who expressed their prayers for the victims of the tragedy. Their prayers of support and comfort for the families left behind. Lives have been changed. But the headline went on to talk about the meaningless platitudes that were offered up by those who didn't have the backbone to do anything. Of course, it's now being politicized, and I don't want to politicize the issue, though sometimes it's hard not to. I think there's politicalization of the issue on both sides of the topic. And that dealing with easy access to firearms that we have in this country. But that didn't concern me as much as the headline. The headline frustrated me. It angered me as I was listening to the news as I was going in to work that day. 
God isn't fixing this. So I wanted to talk about that. Because it's in times of deep tragedy and sorrow that we are grasping for answers and we're wanting to find something because we're wanting God to fix it. But the headline says God isn't fixing this. What does that headline imply? It implies at least three things I'd like to talk briefly about. And then I'd like to suggest one final point to say why God isn't fixing it, if you will. The first implication of that headline says that God doesn't care. That he's just off there somewhere aloof and he doesn't care about what's going on here in this world, in this life for us. In John chapter 1, we see in the very first, and just to summarize those first 18 verses again as I do oftentimes, because it says so much. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw His glory, glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This is he whom I said, who, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten of God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He doesn't say that he's seen him. He just says he's explained him because... He is God. Jesus said in John chapter 8, Except you believe, unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. And then later in that chapter, He told them, Before Abraham was born, I am. Using the Tetragrammaton, using Yahweh, to say that I am Jehovah. I am Yahweh. It's difficult to explain the Godhead. But when we see that in verse 18 it says, He has explained him, tells me that he explained his character, his nature, and at times like this, his compassion. We see the compassion of Christ. Passages like John chapter or Matthew chapter 9. In this chapter, prior in the immediate context of where I'll be going, and maybe I can just back up and give you the highlights here as well. It's along it. Paralytic is healed in chapter 9, early in the boat. They get into a boat, and he heals men, a man. Get up, pick, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And we got up and went home. The crowd saw this. They were awestruck, glorified God who had given such authority to men. Then he calls Matthew. Come follow me. Leave your tax tables. Follow me. And I'll make you a collector of men. My words, not scripture. But taking off from what he told the fishermen, right? I'll make you fishers of men, I'll make you a collector of men. And their souls and their hearts. But in chapter 9 and verse 20, he healed a woman who had been had an issue of blood, a hemorrhage for 12 years. She said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I'll be healed. And seeing her daughter, you take courage, your faith has made you well. And at once the woman was made well. And there were others. And it just goes on down. It says in verse 35, Jesus was going through all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. 
seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. But he saw they were like sheep without a shepherd because he felt compassion for them. He was moved in the depths of his being because of their pain and their suffering. And the writer of the headline says, God isn't fixing this, says to me that God really doesn't care about his people. So we just need to throw religion away and stop with these platitudes. And you terrible Republicans need to get on board and take away all of the firearms that are in this country. Again, politicizing an issue in the midst of people's deep and grief, deep pain and horrible levels of grief. There may be a time to talk about it in sensible fashions of what to do about violence. But violence is not an issue of an inanimate object. It's an issue of the heart. And Jesus came to touch the hearts of people. And then they would take care of the things in their life themselves. God doesn't care. Yes, he cares. We know he cares. Because he loved us so much that he sent his son to tell us what he was really like. And as John would write in his gospel in chapter 3 and verse 16, that verse that we quote so often, we can say it from memory. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but should have everlasting life. God cares. Because when the fall took place and in the Garden of Eden, immediately he planned, a, well, he planned a plan before that, according to Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, that we would be adopted by God as children in Christ. But after the fall, he immediately tells Adam and Eve that one of her offspring, one of their children, will be born. And though Satan will bruise his heel, he will crush the head of Satan. Jesus would would receive a minor insignificant blow, but Satan would receive a death blow. Because God cares. And we can see his care throughout history. Because the other implication is this, if God doesn't care, is that God, if he does care, either cannot help, or if he doesn't care, he will not help. But God knows. And so it's in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6, and verse 7, that the burning bush... And he tells Moses in verse 7, The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. I see what's going on. I've heard their cry. I am aware. I am knowledgeable about everything that's going on with them. And so I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians. To bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. He says, I see, I'm aware, and I'm going to help. Now, why didn't he help before that? Was it time? I don't know the heart of God, if you will, to know why in his wisdom and his mindset it it took until that point in time. Except maybe so that the people of Israel would just get to realize... How much they needed God. So that we would know how much we need God. 
And he said, I have come down to deliver them. And I read the Revelation letter, just as you do. And in chapter 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches of Asia, I know your deeds to Ephesus. I know your deeds. I know your toil and perseverance that you cannot tolerate evil men. You put them to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. I know all the things that you're doing, but I also know this. You've left your first love. And to those others, he kept saying basically the same thing. To the church in Smyrna, I know your your tribulation and your poverty. To the church in Pergamum, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and do not deny my faith. But I also have these things against you. To the church in Thyatira, I know your deeds, your love, your faith, and service of perseverance. But I have this against you. To the church in Sardis. I know your deeds. You have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. I know your deeds. I know what's going on with you. To the church in Philadelphia. I know your deeds. I know what's going on with you. To the church in Laodicea. Again, I know your deeds. God knows. God knows what's going on in our world, and He is there to help. It's not a matter of He cannot help. That's why I like the prophets. And we look to them for that knowledge, that realization that He does help. It was in chapter 2 of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar has a vision. He doesn't know what it means. So he calls all of his magicians, his astrologers, all of his wise men in his kingdom. And he says, tell me my vision and tell me what it means. And they say, oh, king, we'd love to, but no one has ever requested of us to tell us the vision. You tell us your vision and we'll tell you what it means. He says, "Uh uh-uh. You tell me my vision and then I'll know that your meaning, that your interpretation is true. Would the people today, when they would go to a fortune teller, as they do sometimes, asking people, what's in store for me? I had this dream. Tell me about it. Well, tell me your dream. Now, if you tell me my dream, then I'll know that you're right. I mean, Daniel, or Nebuchadnezzar was pretty smart. And so all the people are going to be killed. Daniel prays to God. If it, reveal it to me and I'll tell it. Spare these people. That showed God's compassion for the unbelievers. Because he gave Daniel the interpretation. He gave Daniel the vision. And then in chapter 3 we have three of Daniel's friends. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Got to bow before this great, magnificent statue. When you hear the music, they refused. It was a death penalty situation for that. And he's going to give them a second chance. Now, if you're ready, we're going to blow the music again. And you worship that statue, that image. But if you don't, you're going to be cast into the fire. And who can deliver you out of my hands? You're nothing. And I am king. And they said, the three of them said, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. 
If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And God spared them. I like their confidence, and I hope that we have such confidence. And earlier this year, I believe it was, maybe it was late last year, there were 19 or 20, 21 Coptic Christians that were taken to the Mediterranean Sea and they were executed by ISIS. They were given a chance to recant their faith that they believed in God and that Jesus was his son. And they said no to claiming Allah as God. But one of those men, I learned later, was not a Christian. And they gave him the same opportunity to say that Allah was God. And he says, no, I'm siding with these guys. And they executed him as well. I would that and hope that we have such faith. That we are able to stand. Because God is able to deliver us if he desires. But as they said, even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, we're not going to worship and serve you or your gods. That's not the point. And the Hebrew writer would say, in Hebrews chapter 11, he tells of those faithful, not just Enoch and Abraham and Sarah, and he says, what more shall I say? Time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fire, power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, putting foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release, so they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mocking, scourgings, yes, chains of imprisonment. Some were stoned, sawed in two, tempted, put to death with a sword. They were approved by God. The world, he says, was not worthy of them. It's not a matter of God cannot. It's not a matter of will not. God chooses what's right in his scheme of things. And he wants us to trust in him. And he said to those in Matthew 10, Do not fear those who can destroy the body, but rather fear the one who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. God can, and because he doesn't, doesn't mean that he cannot. And the final thing, the implication is that prayer is meaningless. All of this meaningless words of prayer, prayer doesn't help. But Jesus said in Mark chapter 11, as we've been studying in our adult class, something very significant, and it's when he cast, when he changed, when he withered the fig tree. And then he starts talking about an issue that's very hard for us. He has this fig tree that's withered, and they come back upon it. And Peter says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you had cursed is withered. And Jesus said, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up, cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he is saying is going to happen, it will be granted to him. Now, I don't believe for a moment that he's really talking, again, not his ability, but I don't believe that he's talking about God's people getting together and praying that telegraph pass be cast over and the court not obey. 
I think it's a hyperbole. I think it's say these things that are very difficult for you, if you will just seek me in prayer, I will grant them to you, but you must believe. And then he probably goes to that biggest mountain in our life, and that's the one of forgiveness. Where he says, therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray, ask and believe that you have received them and they will be granted to you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive your transgressions. It's probably one of the biggest things that we struggle with is forgiving others. Being reconciled with them. And that's what we must do. Matthew 18, a man owed 10,000 talents, and his master forgave the debt. Because he beseeched his master, he said, I'll repay it, I'll repay it. Impossible to do so. But when the man wouldn't forgive, the master withdrew his forgiveness. Prayer is important. And while we may not see the answers of it immediately, we know that God answers prayer. He may say, yes. He may say yes and it's delayed. He may say no. He may be just saying, just wait a little bit. I want to know if it's really important to you. Are you going to continue to pray for me? Pray about this so that I know it's important. But what happens when we pray is that we start becoming more aware of our surroundings and those that we're interacting with. We become more aware of God's word And how he wants us to live our lives. Prayer is so very important. Some of the implications of that headline is that God doesn't care, but we know he does. God cannot or will not help. We know he can, and he has proven that in times past. And we don't know what's going on behind the scenes with us right now. How he is helping us. And prayer is meaningful. It does help. It helps me get into a closer relationship with God. Sharing with Him all the burdens and the griefs of my heart. Coming attuned with God. But God isn't fixing this. Second point, and the final point is, why would He? You think of what happened in the Garden of Eden. Everything was perfect. They had Peace, they were friends with God. Walking with Him in the cool of the garden of the day is God in chapter 3 after the fall, but as God was walking in the garden before He cast them out. I mean, that's the relationship they had with God. They had peace. They had protection. Because if God is with you, what's man going to do to you? They had plenty. They were prosperous. They lived in the garden. They could take anything that they wanted except just one little tree. Don't touch it. Don't eat of it. They had everything else that was wide open to them. I know it would be difficult. But whatever your favorite thing in the world is to do, whether it be to do something, whether it is to eat something, and you think about all those favorite things, not just limiting yourself to one, But everything is there for you except this one thing that looks very tempting and tantalizing. And God says, say no to that because I don't want you to touch it. Because I know ultimately it's bad for you. And they couldn't say no. And then that kicked them out of the garden. God sent them out and everything. They lost that peace. 
They lost their protection. They lost their prosperity. Now they were going to have to work. It'd be hard work. There was going to be pain in childbirth. There was going to be living, you know, farming, and you know, the weeds and the thorns were going to be there. The animals would fear them. Life was changed. As Milton said, paradise was lost. Because they turned their back on God. And that's what God said in Romans chapter 1. That they turned their back on Him. We shouldn't be surprised when we walk away from God that things don't go well for us. In chapter 1 and verse 17, for in, the right, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So you want to be right with God, live with Him in faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is either is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew, knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their speculations, their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image of the form of corruptible man, of birds, of four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. And when they chose all of that, it says, very sadly, Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. God gave them over to great degrading passions. Their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. The same way men also abandon the natural function of the woman, burned with their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts in themselves, and receiving their own persons the penalty of their error. Because they walked away from God. Why are we surprised, in verse 28, as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, gave them over to depraved mind to do things which were improper? And you can go on and read that list of things. So why are we surprised that things like this happens? When we abandon God's way, when we ignore His will, when we don't do His will, either by living it, by worshiping Him, or by going into all the world and proclaiming the gospel to the lost. Think about all the years of human history that have gone on since the birth of Christ, the death of Christ, and the preaching of the gospel. And how man, because of his own selfish desires, has perverted the things of God to make it his church instead of God's church following his own understandings and interpretations. When God has clearly given his word and says, here it is, live it and follow it, and I will bless you. But when you walk away from God, you're given over to those things that you want to do in your own selfishness, in your own pride, in your own hostility toward God. Why do we have conflicts over religious issues? Man's pride. Because they think they know better. When God has spoken, and we need to seek Him. God isn't fixing this. When you're not seeking God, how can He? Because you're not on His team. When you care more about 
The foolishness, and I'm going to call it that, foolishness of controlling an inanimate object when it's a matter of the heart. How can God fix it? Jesus came to reconcile the heart. And that's what he did, and that's what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2. The Gentiles were separated from God. There was no peace for them. They were the ultimate underdog, if you will. But in verse 11, he says, Therefore, remember that you formerly, you the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, the one performed by hands, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise and having no hope, and without God in this world. But now in Christ you who were formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. You have peace with God, but you also have peace with your Jewish brethren. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is in the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so that he himself might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by having put to death the enmity. It's in Christ that we have peace. It's in Christ we have peace with God, we have peace with our fellow man. And if we're walking away from God, we cannot receive his blessings. So why would he fix it? So should the author of the headline be surprised? What is he doing to seek and find God? To seek and promote the things of God? When he minimizes God's care, God's power, when he says talking to God in prayer, seeking God's comfort, is irrelevant and meaningless? Why would God fix anything if He's going to live that way? God cares. We know He cares. He's acquainted with the grief that we feel. Jesus was moved with compassion because the people were like sheep without a shepherd. As he lamented over Jerusalem, he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long I've wanted to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. And if people are not willing, how can God fix it when he uses man to fix it? He uses those who are called according to his purpose. And so we seek him in prayer. We seek to be his hands to touch others with compassion of God. And to teach them the ways of God. God isn't fixing it? No. Really, he fixed it a long time ago. And that's when he sent his son, Jesus, who became flesh to dwell among us, to explain God to us, to die on a cross, a horrible death, to be raised in a new life, a resurrected life, so that we too could start over. God fixed it, and the fix is not according to man's criteria, but according to God's criteria. God is fixing it, and he will fix it in your life, in the lives of those that you touch with the gospel of Christ. I don't know what's going on in your life. We're all individuals. We all go through different things at various times in our life. But God can fix them all. He may not fix them the way that you think they need to be fixed. He will fix them if you don't walk away from Him 
but you walk toward Him. So I encourage you to come to Jesus and walk toward God and let Him fix it for you. And whatever's going on in your life, if you have, have a need or you're subject to the invitation of Christ, come to Him. Well, together we stand while we sing. Oh, 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 oh,